Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is it's still odd to consider myself an author, and I don't always do that. But um, it was never meant to be a book was the big thing. And I had, you know, done so much traveling in such a short period of time, and I was going all over the world and running these races. And it was my dad who kind of said to me, he's like, you know, you're doing all these things right now. If you don't keep some sort of journal, you're going to get old like me and you're going to forget it. So I just started jotting notes down. And, you know, my story started with, you know, the Boston Marathon bombing. And that's what really the the trauma from that and the the depression and the PTSD is what, you know, forced me out the front door and got me out running all these races. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre, skincare for athletes. Whether you're in the gym, on the mats, on the road, or in the pool, we protect your skin so you're more comfortable in your own body. To learn more, go to soulpre.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today um, has done a fair number of things. He's hiked the Appalachian Trail. He's finished three different Ironmans. Um, He is a paramedic by trade, so he's still working right now amid all the craziness with uh, COVID-19. But most importantly, and what we're probably going to talk about a lot today, he's the author of the upcoming book, Running Wild, A Quest of Healing Across Seven Continents. Welcome to the show, Bobby O'Donnell. Jesse, thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on. It's it's always nice to talk to authors because I know that there is a lot of work that goes on into getting a book, finishing a book, number one. But then getting your book actually ready to publish? Man, <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah. I had no idea. So, I, so first, I mean, uh, I think Joe said you know Matt Fitzgerald or you're friends with Matt, something like that. Yeah, yeah, had a, a loose connection with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, uh, I've, had, I have, I've had Matt on, and, and he's um, – obviously, he's got, I think, 20-some-odd books to his name nowadays. So, it's like old half for him. Uh, but I, you know, one of the things I'm always curious about is why put yourself through the pain of writing the book? I mean, obviously you have a story to tell, but there's so much work involved. What's, what's the payoff for, for you for doing it? Yeah. I mean, the funny thing is it's still odd to consider myself an author and I don't always do that, but Um, It was never meant to be a book was the big thing. And I had, you know, done so much traveling in such a short period of time. And I was going all over the world and running these races. And it was my dad who kind of said to me, he's like, you know, you're doing all these things right now. If you don't keep some sort of journal, you're going to get old like me and you're going to forget it. So I just started jotting notes down. And, you know, my story started with, you know, the Boston Marathon bombing. And that's what really the the trauma from that and the the depression and the PTSD is what, you know, forced me out the front door and got me out running all these races races and I never really explained to people why I was doing what I was doing it was kind of that I disappeared out of people's lives and I was you know going going all over the place and I thought that if I maybe if I wrote all of it down it might be a good way to explain to friends and family you know why I was doing what I was doing so at the end of the day if you've got the book on your shelf is it is it a matter of like I can pick that back up and look through it and say, I didn't remember all the details that I've got here now. And I can think about those things and kind of think about the journey you went through. Yeah, partially. I think that, I think that's a big part of it, but um, you know, what ultimately led to the decision for publishing is when I, I was quite, I was pretty excited when I put all these journal pieces of journal together and, 
I, yeah, because it was all just documents on my laptop because I was writing on trains and planes and boats and buses all over the world. And I put all of it together. And I say, like, oh, my God, I wrote this book. And then I read it and it was horrible. It was absolutely <laughs> terrible. It's kind of all this disjointed bits of information, which mm-hmm. was, you know, slightly disappointing. Um, and then I, I kind of went through it again and I gave it to a friend. And what he said to me was that, you know, anyone can read, you know, a timeline of events. You know, mm-hmm. anyone can read details about a certain place or a certain race. But what they don't know is how you were feeling when you were doing it and, mm-hmm. and everything, you know, those personal details. So when I went back and I put all that through and then I realized that I kind of needed to tell the beginning of the story, which is the Boston Marathon bombing. And that's when because I do public speaking. And when I do these talks, that's kind of the juicy thing that people want to hear about. They want to hear about the, the marathon bombing. So that was, mm-hmm. you know, the first two chapters of the book were the last chapters that I ended up writing. And when I for, when I started working with Mascot Books and their, you know, the publishing team there, the big thing was they wanted more details about you know, April 15, 2013. So it, it was kind of revisiting that and putting all, all those details in and then fitting it back together. So when I finally had this finished product, I wasn't entirely sure I did want to put it out there because all of a sudden all of these strangers would have access to this incredibly personal part of my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the decision, what, what led to the decision to actually publish it is I've, I've gone through so much. And when I look at all these heroes that have inspired me and have you know, really helped me through some of these hard times through their writing or their TED Talks or whatever it is, they seem so far above me and they've done so much and they've, you know, accomplished so many things or they're professional athletes um, and I'm not. And I'm really just kind of, you know, I'm 26 now, I was 20, you know, I was 19 when the Boston Marathon bombing happened and I was kind of 20 through 23 when I was running all these races and I thought that people might be able to relate to me through this and if the book the published book could help anyone get through whatever it is they're going through and it just helped one person then that would make it all worth it it would make worth having my story out there and that's why I decided to publish it well I think to your credit or in in some sense thinking about like your relatability you're talking about like the the pro athletes like we look up to pro athletes as an aspiration you know like that's like, you know, part of my story, which people that listen to the podcast know, is that I spent eight years post-college trying to become a pro triathlete. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, we have these thoughts and aspirations, like I'd like to be like that. But at the same time, it could be hard to identify with those people. Because like you said, they're they're up there in the cloud. Like they don't right. – that's not part of who I am, but then – I think maybe that makes your story more relatable in the sense that like, you know, I don't know anything about your running times or anything like that, but just coming from the place of what you've mentioned that, you know, if you're average, whatever that means, it's easier for somebody to be like, well, Bobby's doing it. Like I can do it or I can do the thing that I want to do. And I can be inspired by the story that, you know, an average quote unquote person is, is doing Right. And I think that was huge. You know, when I first left, you know, when I did my first, uh, you know, trip outside the United States, I was 20. And that that first trip was a a mission, medical mission trip to Nicaragua. And that's what ended up inspiring me to realize, you know, hey, there's this beautiful place in the world that I had never even known about. And if I run, I can see more of it. 
and there has to be so many more places around the world that I can go do this. And it, you know, makes me feel good. And it made me learn to love running again and overcome this trauma. So, you know, the next trip to do that, my first race outside the U.S. was in Australia. And that was really like my first big international trip. I didn't come from a background of traveling. My parents had hardly ever left the country. And Mm -hmm. it was just this big thing that I was just decided to go out and do it. It wasn't that I was, you know, predisposed to having an adventurous background. And that's why I think that it's huge for people to realize that all you have to do is make the decision to go do it. Mm -hmm. Well, that's I mean, that's the scariest part, though, right, is like, you know, you're set in your routine and right now everybody's routine is disrupted but but typically you know typically you have a routine i monday i get up and go to work and then tuesday i do the same thing and then friday i crash on the couch and i you know maybe play some video games or go out with friends of the weekend and i do it all over again and you have to like forcibly disrupt your own routine to to make these things happen you know like you've done so i think that's you know probably the hardest part do you remember um any kind of like mental trepidation or, or like anxiety about doing it and, and what kind of pushed you over the edge, like to move forward? Yeah, it was huge. I mean, and I always say now, like, especially my speaking is, you know, the Boston Marathon bombing undoubtedly was the worst day of my life. Yeah. But it took it took that day for everything else good to happen after that. Um, you know, in the immediate, you know, days, weeks, months, even years following the marathon bombing, you know, I was overwhelmed with this feeling of guilt more than anything else that I was responsible for having, you know, my family there. If, they, if I wasn't running that day and they weren't there to support me, then, you know, they wouldn't have been there. And then they had to go through all this stuff. So it was so important to me to make sure that they were okay and, mm-hmm. and to focus so much more on their mental health that I neglected my own thing. And it, it just led into this you know, really bad rabbit hole of, of you know, then, you know, a year and a half later, mm-hmm. it was, I was a, a complete mess. And I realized that I needed to do something about it. I was running, you know, a, anyone I'm sure that listens to this running is their stress relief or cycling or getting into the pool or like doing interval training, like, you know, hammering your body out. It, it was this massive stress relief. And all of a sudden mm-hmm. it was the exact opposite. It triggered anxiety. It was just yeah. anytime I, you know, I hear the beep on my watch or I was lacing my running shoes. It just reminded me of that day and I needed to figure out how to get running back. And I think that initially I thought that, I needed closure by finishing the Boston Marathon the next year. So as much as I didn't want to go back in the city again, because I had this anxiety about, you know, being in crowded places or back mm-hmm. in this a similar situation, I was like, you know what, maybe I just need to, to get back in it and cross that finish line. And the biggest thing is when I crossed the finish line in 2014, nothing had changed. And mm-hmm. that's when I realized I was like, all right, I, I've tried all these things. I've tried counseling and none of it's working. I need to do mm-hmm. something totally different. And when you talk about routine, like, I, you know, I grew up in suburban Massachusetts and, you know, had, you know, great parents, you know, I was well looked after. I didn't really face any adversity growing up. And so I never felt the need to change my routine. I never felt the need to take a risk or do something different. And then that's what it finally was. I was like, I need to do something entirely different. And that's what led to, to start traveling. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's kind of one thing I wanted to ask you about is um, whether you had done you know, any, any kind of counseling prior to going off, you know, on your journey. Um, I don't recall the episode now, late thirties, early forties, but one of my more popular episodes with, um, by Cagadone, we talk a lot about like mental health and running. He's an ultra marathoner. And, you know, one of the things we discuss is like, is running therapy therapy versus like therapeutic 
you know, because a lot of people talk about running as my therapy, which is obviously, or I would say obviously your case where it's like it's had this very therapeutic event. And so it's kind of interesting to see different people's perspective on it. And I'll, I'll be um, candid and say I agreed with Mike that like running is not therapy in the sense that like therapy has a, a prescribed method. I'm sure whoever you saw or went with, like they had a method of like, let's work through right. this by doing this, this and that. But that, and I find this in my own life, that running has these almost intangible therapeutic you know, qualities, things that are not do step A, then step B, then step right. C that, you know, that affect us. So it's like, it's, it's interesting to see you guys both kind of live in a, in a similar world in the sense of like having things to work through and then coming out with completely different perspectives. Yeah. So I, you know, it's not a catch all. It's not like, you know, running right. isn't, the, is, isn't this magic thing, you know, it's, it's part of a system and a system has its parts. And that's the big thing with the book is that I don't want people to misconstrue it that, you know, you don't need counseling because you can just go out <laughs> into the right. mountains and, and fix it because, you know, counseling does work for some people. It just didn't, you know, all of it didn't work for me. Formal right. counseling isn't work for me, but it can very well work for many other people. And right. you know, in my line of work, I do see that multiple times. But I think the trouble is, is when I finally sought counseling, and that's a big deal for anyone who's going through a mental health issue, because we have this, this huge stigma against mm -hmm. mental health, because you can't see it, you know, people sometimes don't view it as a real illness. And what I tell patients right. that, you know, whether it's an emergency room or in, in an ambulance, is that, you know, if you're going to a hospital with a mental health illness, it doesn't make it any less severe than the person in the room next to you with a broken arm. It's just that you can't see you know, your brain on an x-ray, right. you can't see what you're going through or not. Right. Um, so, you know, that, that, that does work for some people, but because it takes so much to admit that you have something or that you're going through something, because as soon as you, you do that, it makes it real. Once you say, once you go to someone, what you've been keeping inside you is now a real thing. And it's a, it's a really scary step. So when you go to counseling, and I've seen this uh, with patients, is that if you if you take that first step and it's a really big deal and you're really, I was incredibly nervous the, the first mm -hmm. time I went um, and then when it doesn't work and you go again and it doesn't work it, it's a really defeating thing because you have this expectation that mm -hmm. that you're going to start to get better and when it doesn't it's almost like the, the world's ending and you need to try to figure it out so you know when I started running and I started doing this traveling I started to feel better but when I talk about it being part of a system it wasn't just the races and when uh, for a speech that I was giving recently uh, I, what I did was I looked up because a lot of times people say, you know, our audience doesn't run ultra marathons and mm -hmm. they haven't you know, gone over the world. You know, you need to make it relatable. You, you need to be able to relate to these people. And I totaled up, you know, the, the times for the races that I did. So, you know, seven races, seven continents, somewhere, you know, somewhere normal marathon distance, somewhere 50K, somewhere 80K. But the total time was like 44 hours or something. Mm -hmm. It was less than two days cumulatively, cumulatively over a year of travel outside of the United States. So mm -hmm. it was just a fraction. It was the conversations with people and, you know, these strangers that became very close friends all over the world that, that led to this holistic process of healing. It, it that, and I think like sometimes that's the tough part in communicating. Like often I speak to runners um, and, cause that's the background I come from, but it's like, how do we communicate this? I'll say, like existential or ethereal kind of quality that you glean from 
this seemingly simple activity, you know, like how do you make it relatable? So like in that case, when you were talking to those people, what, you know, what do you recall, like what struck a chord with them as you're, you know, kind of speaking with them? Yeah, I think a, a lot of it um, is I'll, I'll talk about my background with running, which wasn't like really anything to write home about. I mean, I played ice hockey, golf, mm. and tennis growing up. Like I wasn't a runner by any means. And it wasn't until um, it was like my junior year of high school. I, I started running literally because I wanted a Boston Marathon jacket. It was in Boston with my dad. Uh, his birthday is the third week of April. So we'd, we'd go into the city and there'd be all these people walking around Boston Marathon jackets on. And when you're 17, it's a cool jacket and you mm-hmm. want one. And it's like, especially growing up in New England, like the Boston Marathon is even more so. It's a state holiday in Massachusetts. So everyone yeah. always knows someone who's doing Boston and everyone will always commit to it at some point in their life. And like most of the people never do it. And for whatever reason, whether it's to prove a point or anything else, I you know, this was the one thing that I was going to stick to, to show my dad that I could do it. And, uh, you know, so it led on to, to all this running, but I remember, you know, not being able to run two miles and then just being able to push yourself further and further and further. And you don't have to start from this amazingly, you know, athletic background. Like I, I hated mm-hmm. running until I figured out how to love it. And, um, then, and that was, what was really hard about the Boston marathon bombing is, you know, something that I loved so much and that I wanted to do, you know, every day for the rest of my life, all of a sudden I didn't have it anymore. And it's not like, you know, having a physical injury and running is horrible. It's like if any runner or triathlete, if you tweak something, you're paranoid about it for the next like two, three weeks. <laughs> well, um, it can be even longer than that. Like Even I still, longer. Yeah, yeah, I still, if I get wobbly on the bike sometimes, I had a crash a couple of years ago and I'm like, uh, uh, no. <laughs> yeah. It, right. I'm, but, I'm totally with you. So, so, I mean, I guess that's the big thing, right? Because, you know, if I, you know, if I tweak my IT band, I know that or, like, I need to get back on the foam roller and I need to start stretching it out more. And I know roughly that it's going to take this amount of time for it to heal. But when it's your, your mental space with, with, which is what I had with my running, why I couldn't run, I didn't know how long it was going to take. And that was kind of the, the scariest bit. So how did, I mean, how does that, process go like so you you know you go through this traumatic event at boston and then you kind of make this commitment i assume to yourself to to go and go on this journey how does that logistically come together yeah um you know a lot of it was meeting people other places and them at races and then them telling me about other cool things in the world and like that's how I found a lot of the races but um you know I was it was towards the end of college so like the timeline of it really was um Boston 2013 was my freshman year of college so spring of my freshman year and I was running uh cross country uh collegiately at that time and then once the fall came, I just couldn't run anymore. I just didn't want to. So I stopped running collegiately and then decided I needed to go back and run Boston in 2014. Mm-hmm. So that, that spring of my sophomore year. Uh, and then had this, you know, high hopes that everything was going to fix itself. And then it didn't. So then took this hiatus from running until halfway through my junior year when I went on this mission trip to Nicaragua. And realized that I love trail running and running in kind of these beautiful places just because I loved it, not because I wanted a PB or I wanted a medal or mm-hmm. I wanted anything else. It was just because I wanted to, to learn to love running again. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, it, you know, the first so that was, you know, January 2015 was Nicaragua and that was towards the end of my junior year of college. So it was quite complicated. 
at that stage figuring out, all right, I, st- I have this next summer now to maybe go on a trip or go do something, but then I still have another year of school left. And that's kind of when traveling and these races opened up for me. So I ended up going to Australia, New Zealand for that first summer, went back, did my last year of college. And um, then it was a matter of kind of figuring out where I wanted to go. And like I said, it was just meeting these people and hearing about these races, a lot of time on Google and, mm-hmm. you know, all, you know, all these other places, but kind of how it worked in the way I did it is I was really lucky to be a paramedic where I could, you know, work pretty, you know, I was always able to get work. So it was mm-hmm. a matter of, you know, when I was in the United States, it was working 70, 80 hours a week for, you know, two months and then going to travel for four or five months. It was just making enough money until I could go do the next thing. And it was sleeping in my car between my bike and my skis or crashing on someone's couch because I was just I wasn't here enough to you know get a lease for an apartment. Right. I don't I loved it. It was, you know, you know, some of the best years of my life. Yeah, it was like I I have not personally done it. I've traveled a little bit, but I know people that have kind of lived that lifestyle and from what I can glean, there's just something freeing about not having anything. It's just like, get up and go for the day. Like, what are we doing today? And that's all you're focused on is, you know, assuming you've got enough to live on. Right. Because you know, there are some people that like, kind of become run bums and just like do <laughs> do whatever to get by and don't, don't have that back and forth like you did. Um, but yeah, I think, I think sometimes it's, that's appealing to people they get i'll say to like a like a midlife stage and they think why do i have like a house and kids and a car and a dog and like what do i really want all these things let's just throw it all away and like go on an adventure so i i think it's cool that you you know spent the time to do it and you have that you know kind of under your belt not just in the sense that yeah you've got that notch but in the sense that I'm a believer that travel changes people. Huge. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so it's just like, it, and I also feel like if more people traveled, we'd be able to figure out our, like, we're not going to agree on things. Like, you know, we're still going to have things we disagree on. But I feel like after you've been a traveler, you understand a little bit more about, hey, like, I'm in somebody else's backyard. Like, I need to be willing to talk to them and figure things out and not just be like, well, it's my way or the highway, you know? Right. You know, I think one of the the most interesting things was when I hiked the Appalachian Trail, it was like the ultimate equalizer for mm-hmm. humanity. And I think you say it like with, with any long trail, really, because, you know, what you go through that day, what, you know, with your camp, you know, especially the Appalachian Trail, which has, you know, a, a fair few shelters among it, which is commonly where people camp because there's a water source there and things like that. You know, at the end of the day, you start talking to people, what you did that day, whether, you know, it was pouring rain or, you know, there's a ton of vertical gain. They did that exact same thing. And I remember pretty early on in the trail, I think it was either northern Georgia or just the start of North Carolina. There was, you know, like a 22 year old kid talking to this 45 year old guy mm. and about, you know, packway and different types of gear. And it turned out, you know, the 22-year-old kid quit his job at 7-Eleven and the 45-year-old guy was on hiatus as an ICU physician. And it's like where other, you know, in what other circumstance in life would you see those two people interacting on, mm. on that personal level? And I think when we take away all these distractions and all these status symbols, whether it's your job, the amount of money you have, things like that, 
we start to relate to people a little bit better. And I wish that we could do that more so outside of, you know, wilderness areas and more so in, in regular life. Yeah. Well, it's like that, that moment where you are, you're both in an unfamiliar area, you are going through this shared experience. Like you now have something together with this stranger that you wouldn't necessarily have otherwise. And that gives you some ability to connect over like what's happening it kind of brings down that barrier. Whereas like, you know, so much, especially right now, so much of our interaction happens over the internet and not even like, right. you know, we're, we're basically hanging out face to face all via screen, but just like, right. you know, you know, anonymized forums or even Facebook, which people kind of treat as relatively anonymous, even if it's not, mm-hmm. you get, I think, Sometimes you get the, I'll say the worst of humanity being a little facetious, but just because people don't have that face-to-face connection to be like, oh, I I can empathize with this human being sitting across from me and think, hey, maybe I shouldn't like say these terrible things to them. Maybe they actually have feelings and that, you know, they go through things that I do as well. Right. I mean, all these platforms kind of dehumanize it in a way. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I would, you know, if I had the option, maybe I'd say, okay, well, we'll make you a tour guide and just be like, just start sending people out on journeys and be like, all right, Bobby's going to take you out and like, we're, he's going to take you across three continents awesome. instead of seven. Yeah, that'd be sweet. I love that. <laughs> it's just, I don't know, man. It's, it's one of those things where sometimes I wish, you know, we're only people, like single people individually. It's like you can only touch so many lives, but it's like if you could get enough people just trying to figure out how to connect on a human level instead of being like, you know, this is my agenda and if you don't agree with it, like forget you. It's like like we all have things in common, whether yeah. we believe it or not. Yeah, it's huge. And I, I think it was really, um, you know, traveling with this is what brought that out of me when it was, you know, cause the, I think the worst thing that parents teach their kids, and this is, you know, a blanket statement, but like, don't talk to strangers. Like mm-hmm. I, I, that's to an extent, that's horrible advice. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think people focus too much on that sometimes and, and people aren't able to, to open up for that reason. And I, you know, I, I heard a lot of really cool statements and sayings and phrases while I was traveling, but one of the ones that stuck the most with me was, I was sitting on a boat in Australia with this German guy and we were having a beer and we were, we were talking back and forth and we were both traveling by ourselves. And he said, you know, it's hard to be alone when you travel alone. And when you first hear that, it sounds so incredibly backwards because I think when I first went on my, my first big solo trip, it was me and my backpack. And I was like, all right, I'm going to be by myself for the next few months. And that's going to be it. And, you know, it was the most social thing that ever happened because Mm -hmm. you know once you do that as humans we're we're naturally social creatures and we want to interact and we want to reach out we want to relate to people you know it's something that i think we all crave and it's just a matter of of getting outside of your comfort zone to do that and once you start and you realize that the world isn't this big scary place you're able to do it that much easier the next time um you know because like i said i had never traveled much really before i started going off on you know on that first big adventure and having not been exposed to much and being quite sheltered growing up really until I was, you know, 20 years old. Um, 
I didn't know much about the world. And then all of a sudden I was involved in the Boston Marathon bombing. And then the mm-hmm. world was this big, scary, horrible place. Yeah. And I needed to let myself open back up to it again. And it very easily could have gone the other way. I could have just, you know, hermited myself into, mm-hmm. you know, God knows where. But, you know, you know, I hate that the Boston Marathon bombing happened to me. But on another term, I, I needed it to happen to be the person that I am now. You know, it's it's interesting to see about like people's perspectives and in, in, in how they approach traumatic events or terrible events. Um, I was just speaking uh, last week, so it'll be a couple episodes ago from when this comes out. Um, with a gentleman who lives in Germany, and uh, he's a dermatologist, but just about the current pandemic situation and mm-hmm. my penchant towards. Um, like almost eternal optimism where I'm like, I believe in the human spirit and like people can get through this. But then some people, like you said, go to that option where it's like, I'm just going to like bad things happen. I'm just going to stay inside, like not confront reality anymore and just stay in my safe little bubble. But then you like, at least in my opinion, it seems like those people limit the possibility of what they can become and the good that they can do when they kind of shut themselves off from the world. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I think that's a, a scary, scary thing when people shut themselves off from the world. Yeah. So, you know, as you're targeting, it kind of made me wonder, you know, obviously not literally, but just like on your journey, I think we would agree that running has therapeutic events or ther- therapeutic um effects there's the word Mm -hmm. um but it it almost sounds like like connecting with people on the journey was more of like the the medicine that you got rather than just the runs themselves would that yeah would you agree that's true uh absolutely absolutely and i think that's what you know fed a lot into why i wanted more and why i craved more it was like you know as soon as i got back from somewhere it was counting the days until you know the next trip and because i just knew that there were you know I just thought it was the most amazing thing that there were so many people because a, a lot of my friends really when you think about you know who your closest friends are they're people that you grew up geographically close to or people mm-hmm. that you went to school with and then it was like you know there's this whole other world out there of mm-hmm. people that you've not met yet and like every time I go away I'd come back with you know all these new amazing friends that I would go visit and you know probably the best example of it really is uh, so i've been living in scotland for the last seven months and okay. uh just came back because of uh, the pandemic really my um my girlfriend's scottish and we were supposed to hike the pacific crest trail this summer so we were supposed to come to america at the start of april and then it's kind of the the travel ban started happening we booked earlier flights and came in the middle of march and yeah you know every, you know it was kind of like that middle of March where like every day things changed like with the greatest margins. Mm-hmm. So very quickly realized that we were, you know, going to be quarantining in New Hampshire, which is not, mm-hmm. I mean, we're in a great spot. We're still able to, you know, safely um, self-isolate and make it to the White Mountains close by without, you know, having much of an impact. So we're, we're all things considered, we're really lucky because neither of us were planning on uh, having work for the next, you know, five months because we're going to be walking the PCT. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, since the since everything happened, I've gone back to work in New Hampshire, and we were out in the hill, out in the mountains every other day. Um, so, you know, all, all things here are really lucky. But you know, I ended up in Scotland because it was my last continent was uh, the was Asia. So I decided to do the Everest Marathon in Nepal, and you know that one in particular. Like, you get to know people 
really, really well because you have to be out there for, you know, four or five weeks acclimatizing. So, you know, you're interacting with the same people every single day. And, mm-hmm. you know, by, you know, two of my best friends in the whole world now were, were people that I met, you know, during that event. It was this uh, woman from Scotland, Fiona Smith, and this guy from Ireland, Tom Power. And she's a reindeer herder and he's an Irish police detective. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's like, in since then, you know, they've come to America uh, two or three times. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fee and I have gone to Ireland multiple times. You know, Tom's come over to Scotland, you know, a, a ton of times after that. And, you know, it was going to visit Fiona one of these times and like helping her with the reindeer and kind of living up there that I met my girlfriend. And now it's mm-hmm. like my, my whole life has just changed so dramatically. But it's like it's this it's a similar thing where, you know, why would you ever expect a uh, a 26-year-old paramedic, a 34-year-old Scottish reindeer herder, and a 46-year-old Irish police detective to be friends. It's just, like, the most hilarious thing. But, like, it just, it would have never happened if I didn't, you know, open myself up to that. Yeah. It's like, I, so I, uh, one of my best friends is a Brazilian import to Canada. I met in Montreal, and he now lives in Newfoundland. So we, we talk or chat probably every other day now. It's been... I met him, I was 25 and 31 now, so it's been a while. Um, But it's like I never would have met him if I had not decided, hey, like on a lark, I'm going to go to Montreal and be there for a month by myself and just see what happens. But it's like there's there's this – and this story happens over and over and over again for the people that just make the leap, you know, and meet these people that – you make a connection and, and friendship is almost one of those like odd things where it's like, why are you friends with somebody? You know, like, right. you don't like you don't share resources. You don't are not related by blood. Like it's a voluntary association with somebody. Yeah. That you both have to make effort to maintain yet. Somehow these things happen. Yeah. And, and it's like you meet. I, I sometimes I think it's like you know, to be a little deterministic, like people you're supposed to meet, you meet them, mm-hmm. but it's almost like that, that thread of, again, just being willing to take that leap is enough to connect you to somebody else to be like, there's something there that we both see and we can share. And then we can share all these other disparate parts of our lives that are interesting to each other. Right. No, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's such an interesting thing when you really break it down like that. Think about it. Yeah, As, yeah. Like you said, like that group of people, you're not. So, like the Midwest is known for being pretty insular. Like a lot of people, you know, are born here, stay here, don't move anywhere. Especially the small, you know, outlying towns mm-hmm. from Kansas City. And it's like you're just like uh, my girlfriend. And I talk about this sometimes. Cause she grew up in one of these very small towns, but has you know, moved here and traveled now. And just like your whole desire is just to stay in this town of a thousand people and never leave, just do the same thing over and over and over again. Like there's such, there's such a big world out there to see and do and people to talk to. And yeah, I, I don't know if it's a matter of just, I mean, I guess if that's what they want to do, let them do it. It's not like forcing them, but I just feel like, if they understood what they were missing, maybe it would incentivize them to leave a little more. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I wonder if it is, you know, it's one of those things where you you don't know what's out there really until you, until you experience it. And, you know, I, I wouldn't have known unless, you know, I got pushed out my front door. 
Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, and I, I think that is an incredibly common trend in the United States as well. Like we just don't travel as well as, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're, and part of that's proximity. I mean, it's really like living in, in Europe is just so good because everything's so close. So mm-hmm. and like flights are so chill. Like we flew to, we spent two weeks in Iceland in February and it cost us like 55 pounds round trip to, mm-hmm. to, you know, to fly from Edinburgh. And it was, you know, it's, it's just very different, I think, culturally very different as well. Yeah. So was there a terminal point for the journey or did it, were you just like, okay, I've done seven continents, so it's over or, or does that itch still there? Uh, yeah, no, it's still there. It's always, you know, pl- planning the next thing. And, you know, when I, so th- it was like, I always had it, the next thing relatively planned until, um, in, until I finished the AT. So was, I finished the continents in December, 2017, and I had already planned to through hike the AT in 2018. And then it was like, after the AT, I wasn't quite sure what was next. And that was why I, I decided to go to Scotland. It was, uh, Fiona and, and Tom came and hiked a week with me on the AT. And he mm-hmm. was like, oh, well, if you don't know kind of what, what's next for you, why don't you come to Scotland for a little bit? And I was going to go for, you know, two, three weeks. I was doing two races there. I was doing a race in a marathon in Scotland and then a marathon in Ireland. And then I ended up staying for like three months. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's part of the nice thing about being really flexible with plants and stuff like that. But, you know, it, it'll always be there. I think it's, you know, it's like racing. It's like once you have a taste for it, you're just not going to stop until like, you physically can't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's always something bigger, something further uh, out there. And, yeah, I have a, you know, I have a list a mile long on my phone of, of stuff that I want to do and, and stuff that I need to get out and do. But that's what I think is so important about just taking the time to do it while you can. Because you, especially, you know, I've, I've been lucky in a sense to, to get this perspective from working in emergency medicine for the last six years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you know, people that I see come to the hospital, people that call 911, you, you never expect that. You don't wake up in the morning and say that these things are going to happen to you. Right. And, you know, while, while you're body is physically able to do it you know you, you just got to do it you got to figure out you know that you can always make an excuse not to do something because you don't want to mm-hmm. spend the money or you don't have the time for it uh but you know one day you're not going to be able to and that's scared that's what scares me yeah um, but. yeah no it's so it's it seems like it's kind of died down a little bit but it definitely for um so i graduated college in 2011 um and then for a, a little bit before before I graduated college, probably when I entered 2007, 2005, I'm trying to think when the four hour work week came out. But for, I would say, at least a good decade, like, and it's still alive, but the whole like lifestyle of being like a digital nomad and like trying to be more flexible with life so you can travel more, like, really blossomed as like kind of, you know, you're younger than me, but we're not that disparate in ages. No. Um, like, as we're coming of age, like, that whole idea really bloomed up with you know us growing up basically and kind of i felt like in some ways that was like our generation's rebellion against like materialistic desires and be like no i want to go out and travel and see the world and meet people and and do these things while like you said while i have the opportunity I, i think a lot of us stare at you know the possibility of so the traditional path where it's like okay you get a job you work for 30 40 years and then you're 65 and you retire it's like okay i'm 65 i'm 300 pounds because i sat at a desk and ate cookies all day now i can't actually go do those things anymore so i'm you know being ridiculous a little bit but just 
there's so much happens, like you said, that you see firsthand between 20 and 65 that it's like, take the opportunity while you have it. Because you don't know what's happening tomorrow. Yeah, and I think that that's where, you know, our generation, you know, changed a lot from our parents who, you know, I'm like, you know, my mom and dad, it was when they, you know, were 18, they got a job and that mm-hmm. was their job until, you know, they retired. And but for me and, you know, I inadvertently discovered this travel because of, you know, the events that happened in my life. I'm, you know, I'm really glad it did because, you know, I, I definitely would have. I think stayed on that traditional path of, you know, getting into a career, you know, taking the, the two week vacation once a year, maybe, and then getting to be 65. And then, you know, that's the, that's the thing. It's like, I knew that when I retired, I couldn't go, you know, to some, you know, cr- really remote place in the world and run a hundred K. It's just not mm-hmm. doable. I needed to do that when I'm in, you know, my twenties or my thirties, it's just not, you know, I wanted to do it while my body was able to function and, and see these places and experience them how I wanted to. Yeah. Well, and for you listening, um, it, it's not to disparage a traditional path because I'm even probably more right. so on that now running a couple of businesses where well, I'm pretty tied down. But it, but I, I don't want to speak for you, Bobby, but I guess the point I'm trying to get across is that like forcibly disrupting your own routine to have an adventure at some point in time helps make you a more interesting person, which in turn, I think helps make you happier absolutely and i get yeah that's absolutely true you know and it, it's a thing too where the grass is always greener you know right. i look at some some of my friends who have you know really stable lives and, and pretty solid bank accounts and I'm like oh you know that that would be pretty nice to, to have some normalcy to yeah. it all but but then and they look at some of the stuff that i've done and they wish that they could could get away and you know it's a matter of finding balance i think at the end of the day yeah well that's you know, funny, so I mentioned uh, Mike earlier, Mike Hagedone, and, and the big message that, like, he talked about and we talked about was basically just, like, gratitude and being grateful for, like, the things you have or the you know, the people that are in your life or whatever it is that is present with you now. Um, and I, I, I can't remember who it is. I think it's Ezra Firestone, who's, a like, a, a, a business guy, entrepreneur. Um, he was talking about he's big on gratitude and his point was basically if you can't be grateful for what you have now, no matter how much you have, you won't be satisfied. Right. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, no, it's very true. Yeah. So it's just like trying to figure out, you know, what's important to you versus saying, you know, I wish I'd lived Bobby's life or, you know, you saying, oh, maybe I should have done something more normal. It's like we all have different opportunities and different experiences, which we can share through with each other. But like as long as we can be grateful for where we are and then also continue to set our sights ahead, like I think that's the best that we can we can do. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, if I could change one thing about, you know, society as a whole is that that, it's just especially, you know, social media amplifies this to an extreme, but we just live in such a comparative and competitive Mm -hmm. society. And I think that, you know, not to be cliche about it, but you have to have your own journey and you have to be ultimately satisfied with that. And, you know, we look at, you know, comparing ourselves to people, you see that in a really negative sense as well, where I, you know, I try to talk about this when, when I'm speaking to people about mental health 
And then, you know, that's the biggest thing I try to get across my book is I want to help people with mental health. And that's kind of the, the hot topic at the moment Yeah. that, you know, after the Boston Marathon happened, you know, I didn't feel like I had the right or I deserved to, to be depressed because I had, you know, compared to other people had gotten away pretty clean with it. You know, no one in my family had died and mm-hmm. I had all my limbs. So, you know, I was ashamed and embarrassed to even talk about the things that I was feeling because mm-hmm. I was comparing to someone that someone else. And, you know, if anyone's listening or anyone, you know, that reads the book, you know, just because you think that someone has gone through something worse or more traumatic and you doesn't devalue what you've gone through. And I think right. that's such an important message to get across because the worst thing that's happened to you is the worst thing. And that's it. You don't, you don't need to compare it to anyone else. Right. And you deserve to, to feel and experience everything that you have that comes with that. Right. There's, there's kind of like um, almost a culture of it. In, in, he talks about it in a different sense. Uh, I think in one of, not maybe not the best example, but Dave Chappelle has a, has a bit where he's talking. It's not, this isn't even the comedy part, but he starts talking about like how essentially, if I remember right, invalid comparative suffering is where it's like, Mm. I suffer, you suffer. You don't need to compare them. We're both suffering. Right. You know, like it's not a contest of who suffered more. You're, you're both suffering. You both need to be healed and go on your own journey to become better you don't have to be like, well, I suffer more, so I need the attention, you know? Right, right. It's not a matter of triage in, in everyday life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, I do want to know a little bit about logistics. And, I, I, you know, I'm trying to dance around in the book a little bit. Obviously, I haven't read it yet, or at least it looks like it's still pre-order as we're doing this. So I don't haven't had a copy of it. Yeah, it should um, be out. should be out now. I, okay. I know you can, you can get it on Amazon at the moment. Okay, okay. That, that's... I meant to ask you that for, before we got going and then we got going, but cause I, cause when I went to the, the sales page, it still said like pre-order now. So I was like, okay. Um, okay. Uh, but so I, I don't want to like have you be like, this is what happens in this chapter, that kind of thing. But I do want a little bit of logistics. I'm logistically mm-hmm. curious about uh, Antarctica and how that worked. Yeah. Antarctica was cool um, for, for sure. I did it with a, um, a company called uh, Marathon Adventures. I think they're based out of Minnesota, but a guy named Steve Hibbs, he's awesome. Hi- highly recommend them if you want to go do Antarctica. Um, it, especially, it, it was different for me because I wasn't massively keen on on doing like the marathon tourism. Like, like mm-hmm. for me, it was mostly I was going and doing my own thing and figuring mm-hmm. out how to get to these races. Obviously, Antarctica isn't one that you can do that for. Um, right. You, you, you need a company because you need a, w- a way to get there, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so Antarctica was my, it's funny because it was my most expensive, um, but also my shortest trip doing mm-hmm. any of these. Like at all the other races, I was, I was gone for, you know, three, four months. I think I was gone for two weeks for this. And it was actually just after my winter break during my senior year of college. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically you go to, uh, with this company, you go to Chile, you go to um, Punta Arenas, the southern southern tip of Chile, and then you wait there for uh, however long it takes to get a weather window for you to be able to fly to Antarctica. So this race was on King George Island, so just northwest um, off the coast of Antarctica there. And we were relatively lucky. We got a window kind of in the first, uh, I think it was like the second or third day that that we were kind of aiming for. And you basically just need enough visibility, low wind and you know uh, a, a clear enough runway you know which is you know gravel sand ice it's not right. you know an, an, an airport by any means 
Um, and it was, it was really loops. Um, but the, the best part about it was, um, penguins. Like it was mm-hmm. one of the, the coolest things to be, you know, running, running around. And it, it, it's exciting at first, you know, seeing a wild penguin for the first time. Mm-hmm. And then it, and then it gets frustrating because they're so curious because they don't have tons and tons of human interaction. So when right. I think about, you know, growing up in New England and, you know, every animal is so skittish or there's, you know, deer, squirrels, chipmunks, they'll, yeah. they'll always run away, but penguins will run towards you. So it's really fun at first. You're getting this really close interaction with these really amazing animals. And then, you know, after an hour, two hours of running and you're, you're trying to maneuver through the snow and, and you're breaking trail in some places. And then you're trying to have to, to get around the penguins and it becomes kind of this game a, a little yeah. bit. So, so, so it is interesting from that aspect as well. And yeah, it's just nice to see some places that are still relatively untouched um, by people. I think that, you know, I'm, I'm constantly trying to find places that are like that. Yeah, well... God, I can't remember. I mean, this is this is is some dumb TV show, I'm sure, but it's like uh, the sentiment that basically we are born too late to live in the age of adventure, as in the planet's basically populated by people, you know, but too early to live in the age of space exploration. So yeah. we're like in this middle zone where we there's not really uncharted territories for the most part for us to go unless we're gonna like start specializing in like super deep sea diving or something right, right. so uh, yeah i was curious about the penguins just because i was like if they're hanging out and i didn't know about, about them running towards you but i'm like i can just imagine you know they're animals like they're not going to be like hey there's a path here so i should stay off of it I, they may just sit there if they want to sit there so it's like right. you're trying to like hurdle penguins while you're <laughs> while you're trying to run a marathon yeah yeah so i mean it was cool and you know those are the things that i look back on and you know i've been in- incredibly lucky to to go to and have run in some of the places i have and, and it's those kind of funny moments like that 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 you really cherish i feel like that's a you could be playing like going to going to a party and telling it's starting with uh like icebreaker two truths and a lie and you could just add things like i once ran with a penguin and like just just some like nonsensical things and people would be like it was definitely the penguin one. He wasn't running with penguins. Like, no, that was that was the true one. Yeah, yeah. No, I've definitely definitely had some good experiences, and you know, I, I always um, you know credit my parents for it as well because it was I I grew up you know always you know what my parents said that was it, and mm-hmm. I, you know I respect my parents enough that if when I started doing this, if they said you know that's crazy, you shouldn't be traveling there, or you shouldn't be spending the money on this, or you shouldn't be running in that place. I just wouldn't have done it. Like it, it, It's another thing that would have changed everything, but the whole time, they, it, it's crazy and outlandish as some of the things that I've done where they, oh, even if they didn't agree with it, they supported my decision-making in it. Mm-hmm. Have you seen your, like, have you seen your relationship change with them because of the journey? Yeah, I think so. I think, uh, especially with, um, you know, my mom, who was just, she, we always kind of say that she is the most overprotective mom in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think she has definitely learned to compromise on, on certain things and realize that in, in her own way that the world isn't as big, a bad, scary a place because mm-hmm. of, you know, some of the things that I've gone or some of the things that I've related back to her. Yeah, yeah. So you you mentioned earlier like the the admonition that a lot of parents give to kids about don't talk to strangers mm. or you know like I grew up in martial arts and there's stranger danger <laughs> right you know 
but it's almost like okay you need to be able to like be street smart and know about a dangerous situation but otherwise it's almost like yeah talk to strangers so it trying to take that advice and change it into something more reasonable do you like how would you change that phrase or like how would you change that lesson um you know if you had kids and you're trying to teach them about like your new approach how would you change how would you change that sentiment yeah i think i mean it's important to be cautious and especially to you know this isn't you know applicable to you know seven eight nine-year-old kids right where it's like yeah go go talk to strangers like go go out and you know find a van and you know it it doesn't work (laughs) right um uh, you know, I, if I were to change it, it would be, you know, be cautious, but don't be so cautious that, that you shut yourself off from opportunities. Because, you know, the, the thing that, that made my journey happen was being open to opportunities. Because I, when I look back at everything, you know, it, it was because I said yes to certain things. And I, I've never regretted saying yes to, you know, someone I- inviting me on a trip or to do something within a trip. But, you know, I I've, I've can think of, you know, 10 things off the top of my head right now that I've regretted saying no to. Yeah. Um, so, so it, it's being able to, to have the common sense to, to see when you should do things. Yeah. That's, that's a, a kind of a sentiment I've tried to use when I travel is just like, say yes, that, that's the simplest thing. At least I've found that's the simplest thing you can do to get outside of your comfort zone without effort, you know, right. just like see something just say yes. Like you'll find yourself outside of your comfort zone, right. navigating new situations and, you know, having experiences you wouldn't have otherwise because maybe you're afraid or you don't, you think you don't like it or you don't normally like it or whatever. It's like, well, maybe that new situation will bring new insight that you wouldn't have had otherwise. Absolutely. And I think that's so applicable to, you know, the racing community as well. Yeah. It's like, like, you know, it, you've, whether it's like doing, you know, making the jump from marathon to 50k or something, mm-hmm. that, you know, you're very reluctant to do it. And then, you know, you don't regret saying yes, once you've done it, you know, mm-hmm. or maybe it's, you know, especially like an ultras, maybe it is that like type two fun uh, yeah. a bit of it. But, you know, I remember in South America, going back and forth, arguing with my friend Joe that I was with, who I was going to run the race with, whether it was we were going to run, um, you know, the 80K or the 50K. And we had done, you know, like 60, 70 miles of trekking just before that in Patagonia. And I was like, oh, I really don't know if I want to run 80K. Yeah. She was like, no, 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 we got to do it. We got to do it. We got to do it. I'm like, okay, all right, like, fine, we'll do it. And, you know, I'm so glad we did. Um, and it's just good those things because, you know, a lot of the things that, I have the best memories with or the, you know, the most memorable experiences were things that I was reluctant to do, but I, I decided to do it. I think it's a good, good uh, note to start wrapping up on. Um, so this year I'm asking everybody the same question because this is kind of a universal, but always ends up being a little bit different. And it's particularly poignant with you given the book. Um, so I'm asking everybody, what do you think the purpose of sport is? The purpose of sport? Yeah, I think it, this is kind of an, an interesting time to, to ask that as well, because mm-hmm. we're seeing kind of how, how the world is, uh, is without sports. Right. And, and I think it's making us realize the, the importance of sport beyond competition, because it, it really is we seek sport for inspiration. We seek it for 
human interaction for relatability and, and mm-hmm. it's so much more than than you know a, a time or a, a point total at, at the end of the day and i think that sport in its own right is one of the important most important parts of community and i think a lot of us are anxiously awaiting for it to be back yeah yeah <laughs> I, yeah we definitely have our own rituals around sport and getting together for games and that whole thing here. So I know we'll be ready for at least a soccer season to start again mm-hmm. and, you know, doing everything around soccer season. So um, Bobby, if people want to get the book, if people want to see what you're up to, where can they get the book? Uh, where can they keep up with you? Yeah. So on Amazon, uh, it's running wild book. You might have put my name running wild, Bobby O'Donnell. Uh, it's also on my publisher's website, mascot books. Um, so it'll be on those two places. I have a website, runningwildbook.com, and it's at runningwild on Instagram. Sounds good. Thanks for spending some time with me today, Bobby. I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me, Jesse. It was great. Take care.